0: Turn with me to Second Chronicles and chapter 30. <clears throat> we'll be looking together at the entirety of this chapter, so it's going to be a lengthy reading. Before we come and read God's holy word, let's ask the Lord for His help and understanding. Would you pray with me? Oh, gracious Father, we pray that You would take Your eternal truth and You would sanctify us by it. We ask, O oh Lord, that Your Word would rejoice our hearts and enlighten our eyes and bring us into a deeper knowledge of You which produces greater obedience unto You. Show us Your majesty and power. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Second Chronicles 30. This is God's Word. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. And the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly. So they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem, for they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that He may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord, God of their fathers, so that He made them a desolation, as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to His sanctuary, which He has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that His fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away His face from you if you return to Him. So the couriers went from city to city through the country, of Ephraim and Manasseh, and as far as Zebulun. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month, a very great assembly. They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem. And all the altars for burning incense they took away and threw into the brook Kidron. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the fourteenth day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed, so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. They took their accustomed post according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests threw the blood that they received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who is not clean, to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. Yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone, who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah king of Judah gave the assembly one thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep for offerings, And the princes gave the assembly 1,000 bulls and 10,000 sheep. And the priests consecrated themselves in great numbers. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. So, there was great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to His holy habitation in heaven. Well, this is God's Word, and may He bless His Word tonight to our hearts. We've been out of Chronicles for several weeks, but we left off at an exciting time in Judah. Hezekiah, the godliest king since David, has taken the throne and he started immediately cleaning house. He had the temple cleansed of his father Ahaz's idols. He called the priests and Levites to account to consecrate themselves in the house of God. And then with the religious leadership in tow and the civil leadership following suit, Hezekiah restored temple worship. Regular burnt offerings are being made. Songs were sung as David had prescribed the Levites to do. And joy joy overflowed in the city of God. Well, now Hezekiah has his eyes set on restoring the feasts as well. And the most significant of the annual feasts was the Passover followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now this time, Hezekiah doesn't merely engage the priests or Levites or the civil leadership. He calls on all the people of God to worship the Lord as they should to celebrate His great faithfulness to His people. And as we make our way through this restoration of feasts, I want you to see four things in our text. First, I want you to see with me a plan enacted. A plan enacted in verses 1-5. to Now, verse 1 of our passage speaks of the execution of Hezekiah's plan that He invited all of those, not just in Judah, but He sent out to all Israel and Judah, that is including the northern tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, to come to the house of God in Jerusalem to keep the Passover. And then verses 2 and following reflect back on the deliberations of this particular idea. Hezekiah took counsel with his princes and officials who were already assembled in the city when they had restored temple worship because they wanted to extend religious reform to the whole nation. He's seeking to call all the covenant people back to Yahweh's faithfulness, particularly looking to God who delivered His people from Egypt. But there's a problem in the plan. The Passover, which you may remember, is supposed to be kept in the first month of Israel's calendar on the 14th day of that month, which would be early spring for us but there's a practical problem. Though Hezekiah had the temple cleansed in the first month and the temple worship's been restored, there were still not enough priests consecrated in that first month to sacrifice the Passover lamb. In fact, in chapter 29, there weren't enough priests consecrated just to do their job. Plus, the people aren't assembled in the city. Passover, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was a time where every male in Israel was to come to Jerusalem for worship. Well, that couldn't happen in the first month because of all the cleansing needed and the neglect of the feast. And did you notice in the verse 5 when it mentions to us that the people had not kept Passover as often as prescribed? Maybe an understatement. We should recognize there's been no record of practicing the feasts in hundreds of years. In other words, no one was planning to celebrate Passover. It had totally fallen out of the national consciousness. And to try to give you some parallel, though we don't follow a church calendar, it would be like forgetting the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and it ought to be celebrated for hundreds of years. Such was the moral degradation among God's people that they had totally ceased giving regular praise to their covenant God according to His Word. Well, Hezekiah wants that neglect to stop immediately. He doesn't want another whole year to go by to rouse the people to worship. He's aiming to strike while the iron is hot. He wants the spirit of reformation to grip the whole nation. He's not calling people back to Jerusalem to boast about how many people submit to His rule. He's calling them back to Yahweh, to know Him, to seek Him, to love Him. Hezekiah had started a process of focusing people on Yahweh again, and he doesn't want time to pass and their affections to cool off. So he makes a plan with his leaders to take action right now. And, brethren, I think there's a practical lesson for us to learn from Hezekiah's earnestness. When the Lord brings conviction, to our souls. When He stirs us up with religious affections, when there is zeal beating in your heart to do what is right, you need to act right then. You don't put off prayer when the Spirit has prompted you to pray. We shouldn't put off repentance when the sting of sin is gripping our hearts. We should never delay reformation of our lives when we're convicted of particular sin. We must give God immediate action when He by His grace opens our eyes to error. We should seek the Lord while He may be found. As Matthew Henry says here, delays are dangerous. If we delay reading our Bibles, if we delay prayer, if we delay giving God due worship or carrying out a good deed, if we delay putting particular sins to death, What will happen? Delays will lead to denials. Denying the Spirit's leading. Denying the good that we ought to do. And that, brethren, is sin. And it will grieve the Spirit. Repent now. Serve God now. Give your all to Jesus right this moment. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of rejoicing. You know the song, this is the day that the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day to put your feet on the neck of your lusts. Today is the day to determine that you will go the Lord's way and you won't back down from serving Him. There has to be urgency in your soul to serve the Lord. And that's what's going on in Hezekiah's heart. But in this case, you may wonder, does Hezekiah have a plan that is executing zeal without knowledge? You can't just celebrate Passover whenever you decide as though you get to determine when you celebrate Passover. We don't get to dictate to God the when and how of worship. Yeah, I know, Lord, You tell us we should gather weekly for worship, but I don't want to do it on Sunday anymore. I I think I'd like to pick another day. I want to play golf on Sunday. No, you can't do that. The Lord tells you when you should worship. And he commanded the people to celebrate the Passover in the first month on the 14th day, which would then be followed by the feast, seven days of unleavened bread. Yet, that date did have an exception in the law. In Numbers chapter 9, which I'm sure is right on the top of your mind, in Numbers chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, The Lord told Moses the first time they ever commemorated Passover, if anyone is unclean or if anyone has taken a journey, he could still keep the Passover with his family on the 14th day of the second month. Well, Hezekiah recognizes that exception clause applies to us. The priests are unclean. The people are scattered. This is the scenario of Numbers chapter 9 which permitted the Passover in the second month. So using the merciful provision of God's law, he and the leaders develop a plan to call all Israel to celebration on the 14th day of the second month. They are still carefully following the law of God. Now it should also be striking to us that Hezekiah and his officials are calling all Israel from Beersheba to Dan to come and keep the Passover because Israel's divided. But Hezekiah has a concern for the unification of God's people. He doesn't want small-scale reform. He wants all the covenant people of God to seek the Lord. And just for a little context, brethren, this is a dangerous call. The kingdom of Assyria, which will soon threaten Hezekiah, has already crushed the northern kingdom. Judgment has fallen in severity. And people streaming from Assyrian-occupied territory to go to Jerusalem to unite with a kingdom not yet conquered, that could draw suspicion. It could put a bullseye on every participant. But Hezekiah isn't shaking in his boots over Syria. He's concerned about God's judgment for ignoring worship. So in a threatening context... Hezekiah still calls for devotion to the Lord. He isn't captivated by a threatening world, concerned what men are going to think about him. He's captivated by God. He aims to please the Lord. Brethren, is this how we live? Not for the smiles of men, but for the smile of our God. And again, this plan is permitted by God's law. And now is the time to focus the eyes of faith on worshiping Him. For the Lord honors those who honor Him. What a model of courage and devotion Hezekiah is to us. He has zeal for vibrant religious affections and he wants to do what the law says. Is that how we conduct ourselves? Do we have a passion to worship God? To worship rightly? To give God our focus according to His truth and to do it Now, you know the saying about good intentions and where it leads? Do we not want just good intentions? Do we have a purpose to do what is pleasing to the Lord? And will we stand for our God even in the face of adversity, giving Him our intense devotion? And brethren, do we not just want personal reform, praying for my own sanctification? Do we want corporate reform? that we all would assemble together and stand together and praise God side by side. That is pleasing to our God. Well, then secondly, see, an appeal made in verses 6-9. to The plan has now been crafted to call all the covenant people to Passover. Couriers are sent out with a proclamation. And the message is striking. Verse 6, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Now, Chronicles as a book is almost exclusively focused on the southern kingdom of Judah. But Israel to the north is not forgotten. In fact, the author frequently points out that the twelve tribes, despite what you hear on the History Channel, were not lost. They are not lost. We don't have lost tribes. They still exist. Some of them have come south. The people of God are there. There is a faithful remnant among the sons of Jacob. However, when one remembers the depths of depravity in the northern kingdom, it's astounding that a call would go out to them at all. Israel in the north, for over 200 years, never had a faithful king. It's one of those trick questions you can ask guys being examined for ministry in their Bible exams. Name one faithful king of Israel. And you get this blank terrified stare. Because there isn't one. There are only derelicts like Jeroboam and Ahab. The people were sunk in idolatry, devotion to Baal and Asherah. And while there were glimmers of hope in the north with Elijah and Elijah's ministry calling the people back, there were miracles performed, there were appeals to covenant faithfulness, they were largely rejected. And they were rejected to such an extent that after more appeals from the Lord through Hosea and Amos and Micah, the Lord then crushes Israel using what Isaiah calls the rod of His anger, the Assyrian nation. The Assyrian assault on Samaria was devastating. The slaughter and the deportation staggering. Israel was laid low, and it would seem that all mercy for them was over. You plug up your ears to God's Word for 200 years. Everything is going to go dark. No more mercy from Him. But then look at the long-suffering of the Lord. Yes, He struck them. But now through Hezekiah, He calls to them. There's still an appeal to return to the Lord. If you're up there in the northern kingdom and you've survived the Assyrian assault, if you are poor and needy, if you've recognized your life of evil and it's empty, and if you turn to Yahweh, He will again turn to you. He will pity you. He will help you. He will be known by you. Brethren, is this not astonishing mercy? We're not talking about putting up with people for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 50 years or 100 years. This is 200 years of godlessness. And the Lord still is offering them mercy. If there's anything that should give you hope about God's people in our land, it's this. 200 years of wickedness and God is still offering mercy. Now, the call to mercy comes with also a call to repent. Verse 7, Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord, God of their fathers, so that He made them a desolation as you see. It's a pretty compelling argument. If you're like your faithless fathers, what's going to happen to you? It's much like what the Lord tells the children of Israel when they're gathered at Sinai. And the first thing He says to them at the foot of the mountain is, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. In other words, y'all look and see what wickedness, what the results of wickedness are. I will destroy you. And you can look now in the northern kingdom and you can see what destruction Assyria has wrought because these people rejected the Lord. But, there is hope for you. If you throw off your stiff neck Verse 8, and yield yourself to the Lord and come to His sanctuary. In other words, if you lay down your rebellion like an unbroken bull and submit to the Lord, He will have mercy. He will turn from His anger. Indeed, verse 9, if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. Yahweh is saying through Hezekiah, I am a God of compassion. I will receive sinners back. I will pardon and heal. Further, He's saying that He rules the big bad enemies of Israel, the Assyrian nation. He brought Assyria to destroy and He can now make them show compassion. He can cause the Assyrian kingdom to refuse to mess with the worshipers who come to Jerusalem. But then we don't need to fear the arm of flesh. Our God rules over all hearts. They can't do anything to us apart from the power of God. God reigns. And then comes the final argument. Why would the Lord allow these rebels to return? End of verse 9. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful. I want to pause and remind you of the morning sermon. I mention in this series on the love of God repeatedly to you that Exodus 34.6, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth. That's repeated nine times in the Old Testament. This is just a partial quotation. But it's still being repeated that you would believe. The Lord your God is gracious and merciful. That's who He is. And He will not turn His face away from you if you return to Him. Brethren, do you see what our God is like? He is full of grace. He pities lowly and broken sinners. God longs to be gracious. Our God is ready to forgive. He holds out His hands all day long to the obstinate. And He calls on people to come and to see the mercy that is found with Him. Well, I tell you tonight, brothers and sisters, that our God has not changed. It was His covenant made with Abraham in grace that promised a land. It was grace that rescued Israel from Egypt. It was grace that gave them a king like David. It was grace that sent the Son to die for our salvation. And that same grace appeals to us now. The Lord abounds in mercy and He will receive every penitent sinner. What an incredible God we have. Micah asks, who is a God like you? who pardons sin and passes over the rebellion of the remnant of your inheritance. Our God does not delight in expressing His anger. He delights in covenant love. Does that not stir your affections for this God? Well, how do those in Israel receive this call to repent? See thirdly with me, a response given The couriers carry the king's message, verse 10, from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Such was the disbelief in the covenant God and the devotion to idols, the delight in all things evil, that the general populace in Israel openly mocked the messengers. They treated the call to receive mercy like it was a joke. For they regard Yahweh Himself as a joke. It's similar to how Lot is heard by his sons-in-law when he warned them of the coming judgment of God on Sodom. They regarded God's judgment as a laughable matter. Religious zeal was ridiculous to them. That's how it is here. They sneered at men calling them to repentance. Such was their love of sin and their allurement of the world that it was met with a golem like response. Sin is my precious. And anyone who gets in the way of that is a fool or I will harm you. This is exactly the type of treatment the covenant people gave to the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. you remember when we read of Jesus going to Jairus' house? and When He goes in, He tells the professional mourners that were there, that the little girl isn't dead but she's sleeping, and suddenly they go from mourning to laughing at Jesus. Likewise, the religious leaders mocked our Lord and spit upon Him. They hurled accusations at Him. They had no room to hear His Word as He told them the truth and called them to repent. It's also how Jesus tells His messengers that the world will treat us. Jesus sends His apostles out as sheep amidst ravenous wolves. They will be slandered, attacked, imprisoned, and killed. In this world, beloved, you will have tribulation. The message of God's love to sinners, and yet the message that those sinners must repent rouses hatred. The Gospel is a savor of death for those who are perishing. It begs a question, how are we hearing the call of Jesus to repent? Is it a joke to us? Is judgment a thing dismissed? Is the mercy of God pushed away as unnecessary for the likes of me? Has the love of sin so blinded you to the glory of God in the face of Christ? that you will hang on to it as your precious rather than running to Jesus? Let us all beware of despising a message of mercy. And yet, see, it's not like that with all among the northern kingdom. We read in verse 11, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, of Zebulun, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The word of grace didn't stir all, but it stirred some, and that fact should encourage us. The mercy of God is not going to fall only on dead ears. God will awaken some sinners by the Word and produce humility. We proclaim the truth to sinners not because everyone's going to believe us, but because we know God will draw people to Himself through the Word. He will bring about a response. He will cause spiritual life to spring forth. And that's what happens here. Those from Israel come to Jerusalem and then in Judah, verse 12, The hand of God was on them, giving them one heart to do with the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. In other words, the reason the people responded with a unified heart is because of God. Do you see that? The hand of God was on them. God Himself touched their souls. God worked in them. God gave grace to them. It wasn't their smarts. It wasn't their moral uprightness that produced a change the Lord had mercy on these people. Well, brethren, that's true for us as well. If we have eyes to see, if we have had our hearts united to fear God's name, if we've come to Jesus, why has that happened? Because His hand has taken out our heart of stone. And we now have ears that hear His voice not because of our keen intellectual powers or moral uprightness. We see and hear because of His mercy. He has persuaded us and enabled us to come to Christ and to live for Christ. So the praise ought to go to Him. And that leads us finally to see an assembly rejoiced. The people are now gathered to the feast. It's a very great assembly we read in verse 13. And notice what they do. The first thing they do is get rid of the old leaven, we might say. Verse 14, they removed the altars in Jerusalem and threw them in the brook Kidron. Now the Kidron Valley is like the garbage dump. Sometimes idols were burned there, other times they're just tossed into the river. We we might say proverbially, they took out the trash. What folly would it would be to express devotion to Yahweh as your faithful Savior if the idols in the city still stand. Well, Hezekiah wouldn't have it like that. There has to be radical allegiance. And doesn't Paul tell us the same thing when it comes to our relationship to sin? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says this: Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are leavened, for Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, we are Jesus' people. We're consecrated to Him. We're possessed by Him. We're fit vessels for Christ. Therefore, we are to throw off every corruption in body and soul. We're not going to pretend to give sincere devotion and worship to God while we hang on to our sins in one hand. Now we take our sins and we throw them into the garbage dump. We see the ruinous nature of evil pursuits. And we throw evil away from us. Beloved, that is what devotion to God requires. And while the old is put off, there's something here that represents going a new way, and it is the slaughtering of lambs begin. They prepared to make their sacrifices, we read in verse 15. And as the people do that, the priests and Levites were ashamed. Here are the spiritual leaders in the land, and they had failed. They grieved their sin. However, this sorrow over sin didn't drive them away from the Lord because while they were ashamed, they drew near now to take up their posts of service, verse 16, to throw the blood against the altar. That is to recognize that God is bringing cleansing to their souls. And here, friends, is a little picture of what true sorrow for sin, true repentance should look like. When the believer, touched by grace, grieves sin, he doesn't just wallow in his sin. He turns from it unto God. He comes unto Christ who washes us clean. It's a worldly sorrow that leaves you in your sin, never moving to serve the Lord. And Satan would certainly tell us all that God is just a killjoy. He's always wanting us to feel bad and to wallow in our guilt. That's not true. We grieve our offense to God, but then our God receives sinners. And His reception of sinners produces joy. Did you notice in this last section how joy is a significant theme? I'll highlight it to you. Verse 21, "...the people of Israel present in Jerusalem kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness." And the Levites and priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. Have you ever sang with all your might? That's a thing that pleases God. Then these Levites, verse 22, encouraged in their efforts by Hezekiah, were sacrificing and giving thanks to the Lord. Further, the whole assembly decided to keep celebrating for another seven days. And they did so, into verse 23, with gladness. Worship wasn't laborious to them. They loved every minute of it. And as the sacrifices continued made by the thousands, the assembly of Judah, the priests, the Levites, the folks from Israel, the sojourners, the God-fearers from both places, they all watched this and rejoiced. Verse 26, so there was great joy in Jerusalem. Great joy in Jerusalem. Why did their joy abound? Well, because the covenant God against whom the people had sinned repeatedly and shockingly welcomed them back. He extended His compassion. The Lord is here willing to receive the broken sinner. Willing to hear their prayers. And that staggering mercy stirred their joy. I ask you tonight, beloved, is that kind of mercy stirring our joy? Is our worship filled with not just gladness, but great gladness. And all the more so. Because we don't have to offer thousands upon thousands of bulls and sheep. But we come in view of the Lamb once slain for sinners. In view of the blood of Jesus that makes the foulest clean. Are we rejoicing in Him? And as this celebration goes on, let me point out one more thing as we wrap up. Verses 17 and 20 is where we see it. Those who responded to the call of mercy that went out to the northern kingdom, the vast majority of them were ceremonially unclean. They were ready to participate in the Passover. They wanted to seek God as a gracious God, but they were so ignorant of the law that they didn't follow the prescriptions of the law. Now one might think, well, that's really not a big deal. That is not how Hezekiah sees it. He recognizes that this is wrong. And Hezekiah has been striving to live by the book, to worship by the book. And even as he does that, the people are not following the book. So what does the king do? He complains. No, 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 he prays. Verse 18, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God the Lord, the God of His fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. Hezekiah is a model to us here of the Lord Jesus Christ. He intercedes for the transgressors that this feast may be a joyful assembly. Because brethren, what has happened in the past when the rules of God's worship have been disregarded? Just remember Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu. Or remember 2 Samuel 6, Uzzah reaching out his hand to touch the ark. People died because they didn't worship the right way. This is a serious thing. God is holy and it matters. And Hezekiah is taking that holiness seriously. And yet, he also sees that God looks to the heart. So he asks the Lord to disregard this lack of cleanness and to see their hearts You see, it's possible even in our attempts tonight to worship God sincerely, it's possible that we can still sin. It's possible that we can hear the call to repent, hear of God's gracious nature and desire to know Him, but still seek Him in ways that are not according to His Word. Not what He requires. Thus, brethren, even our worship, even our best efforts need cleansing and that's what the one Hezekiah foreshadows gives us. Jesus intercedes for the transgressors. Jesus takes our faulty worship and fixes it. If we think about that great picture of the incense rising up, representing the prayers of God's people, Jesus' perfection perfumes your prayers so that it's a sweet-smelling aroma in God's nostrils. Jesus brings healing to us when our actions aren't right, when our zeal outstrips our careful attention to what God requires, when our focus is not where it should be, when we fail in any way, and the knowledge that Jesus is praying for us as we stumble along, well, what should that produce in your heart? It should produce joy. Indeed, as God hears these people who are seeking His name, our Father hears us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And brethren, I don't think there's many things that we could think of that bring greater joy than knowing that God Almighty hears our prayers. William Cooper once wrote, that were a grief I could not bear, didst Thou not hear and answer prayer. But a prayer hearing, answering God supports me under every load. And do you see how that's how the chapter ends? Their prayer came to His holy habitation in heaven. When God's people seek Him, when they pursue communion with Him, His ear is open to their cry. Does that thrill you? that through the blood of Jesus, you have the ear of God. Brethren, do we delight in giving God our all, in putting away the follies of sin, in resting our souls on Christ who is our Passover Lamb, and knowing that our Lord hears us when we cry. How can that kind of grace not fill us with gladness? Well, may gladness radiate from us as it clearly radiated from these people. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, as we read of this restoration of the Passover, we're thankful for the lessons it teaches us about right worship, sincere worship. And Lord, we pray that we would worship You in spirit and truth. We pray, Father in heaven, that You would help us to rejoice in all of Your goodness to us. We pray that we would most of all marvel over that gracious, gracious, Call, for You are gracious and merciful, that You would call sinners to You at all. Lord, if we have seen that goodness, may our hearts be filled with exaltation in You. And Lord, we pray that we would never be negligent when Your Spirit prompts us to take action. Help us, O Lord, to be sensitive to the weeding of Your Spirit, that we might seek You now. May there be an urgency, to our spiritual lives where we are zealous to worship You. Hear us as we pray these things. For we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.